Yeah, the, the, the hairdresser was concerned. As they should have been. And my mom was just like, she just does that. I'm like, I'm like I don't know, this is helping, mom. <laughs> Your parents are not nearly as concerned as I would expect, but all right. <laughs> They're used to me. <laughs> there's, there's a good to fair chance our child has mange, but it's fine. <laughs> She'll grow out of it. Oui, c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tory. I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict of crack cocaine. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Fat, French, and Fabulous. I'm Jessica. And I'm still Janelle, and I survived the plague. Yeah, and I think you gave it to me. Through the wires. Uh, yeah, through the wires, you know, because you were sick, and then I was sick, and I think that's, I, I don't know how much about causality or, uh, or infectious diseases, but I think that means you gave it to me. I emailed it to you. That's how disease yeah. theory works. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can email people viruses. I think I heard that. Oh, Jesus, that's the worst <laughs> joke you've made on the show. That's unforgivable, and you should <laughs> stand in the corner and think about what you just did. You've ruined us. <laughs> I'm already sitting in a corner, so uh, we're already we're already in sync. All of our comedic credibility is shot. <laughs> yes, and today we're having a very fun, and by fun I mean utterly heartrending episode. Yeah, this actually, on hindsight, was uh, probably a rough choice for a comedy podcast. Um, yeah. Most of ours are. We can kind of see on our... It's a lot. Yeah, we can mm-hmm. see on our statistics tracker when one person has listened to um, a large chunk of the episodes. We can see when it's one person who's made a bunch of downloads. And we can I tell always... a specific person, but we can tell that it's one person. Unless they're logged into SoundCloud, in which case I absolutely can't tell if it's a specific person. Yeah. Are you okay, Alicia? Yeah. Anytime I see that one person has marathoned our entire catalog over a weekend, I feel like I should have the option to, like, notify their family <laughs> that they need to check on that person. Because there's no way you can listen to our whole catalog and be fine. No. Especially not in, not in a weekend. Like, I feel like you, like, need, you, really you need to space, space that, that out. out. It's, like, it's like giving blood. There has to be a recuperation period afterward. <laughs> You need to drink some juice and lie down. Don't engage in, like, strenuous activity or, like, drive complex machinery. You know, Just... you can only do it every, like, nine days. You know, that's that's kind of the podcast, I feel like. Yeah, yeah, That's just, it's like donating plasma. Ugh. Yeah, so, uh, I decided to shake things up. Uh, it's a Janelle week. Kind of hard to, to tell. We haven't been on a, a great pattern lately while I work on my thesis, um... Boo. And slack. Education. <laughs> yeah, between between a, a mysterious month-long plague that I caught from drinking out of the same orange juice bottle as a bunch of undergrads, and um, just being a grad student, it's been a there's been a bit of a lapse, but it's, it's been a rough ride. It is a Janelle week, and I decided to shake things up by not doing a murder or a mysterious disappearance. Um, <sighs> so instead, we will talking we will be talking about child abuse. I picked Yay! I picked child abuse. 
Um, some fun, just a break from like those horrible episodes about murder and missing missing people. Let's just talk about the most horrifying thing that can happen to a child. Just just a quick palate cleanser. This is the parsley mm. of the podcast, but uh, this is the wasabi. Mm, yeah, it's it's gonna be rough going down because yeah, this is gonna be uh, some fun facts about child development and language acquisition and scientific ethics. But yeah, also this is gonna be rough. Just straight up. We don't do content warnings on a lot of our podcasts, but this is uh, this is your content warning. This is yeah. This is some pretty rough stuff. This is pretty much the worst description of child abuse I think in current medical literature. Yeah. Um, Turn it off now, or hold on to your butts. Hold on to your butts. Get some ice cream. Uh, the notes for this episode are pretty much my verbatim class notes because my degree is deeply depressing. So depressing. Yeah, and uh, if you're interested in learning more about this case, which is a very famous case, and you will encounter it if you take a psychology degree, much of the information in this section comes from, or in the whole episode, comes from a book called Genie, A Scientific Tragedy, which was nominated for a National Book Award, and it was quite good. Oh, neither of those are good signs. No, no, it's the not. The title or the book award. No. If you see, like, a Newbery Award on the front of a on the front of a YA novel... The dog dies. That dog is gonna bite it. Yeah, I get the sense that, like, they needed to take a break from handing out the National Book Award to books about the Holocaust, and they were like, alright, what are we gonna... Ah, this one. They spun the wheel and, like, it skipped past genocide and hit child abuse. Yeah, it was this or Rwanda. That's the sense I get. Also, what kind of prompted me to start researching, I started these notes months ago, and if you remember a couple months ago, there was a very messed up case in California where a group of siblings was being kept hostage by their parents. I can't remember how many of them there were, but there was quite a few, ranging in age from maybe two or three to their early 20s. They were literally shackled to furniture and only escaped when one of the siblings managed to escape out the window. Um, so if you're wondering... What kind of future? There's a lot of musing in the news after that case broke about what kind of future these kids would have and if they could ever really recover from an experience like that. And if you're wondering, <laughs> oh, yeah, it's not the a good answer. Is no, no. The the answer is definitely no. Um, <laughs> current neurology and psychology does not currently allow us to bring somebody back from an experience like that. And we'll kind of get into why with this episode um, by talking about Jeannie. So to start, Jeannie is what is known as a feral child. Um, like a feral pigeon, only much more depressing. Only much worse, because there's, you know, feral pigeons are just kind of effective life, but uh, feral children are horrifying. Um, it, actually, pigeons should only be feral. If you have a domesticated pigeon, you need more hugs. <laughs> As a person, that's not that's not. What if okay. I've domesticated a feral pigeon? That's worse. What What if we are friends now? What if we are companions? Nay, even lovers. I don't think you can domesticate a feral pigeon, and I think anyone oh. who claims they have just lives in constant fear while a feral pigeon takes over their apartment. <laughs> it's just you cowering in the corner and offering it bread crust in exchange for it not shitting on you. <laughs> An exchange that it does not respect. No, not at all. The pigeon knows no laws, no treaties. (laughs) It only knows bread and the panic of being trapped away from the open air. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think a feral pigeon will ever calm the fuck down in an apartment. It's just constant attempts for escape punctuated only by consumption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The odd thunking of it hitting the window. Yeah, I was... 
Like, I'm not going to say that, like, I was in a room with a trapped bird once. I'm going to say we were both trapped, me and the bird. And it was very upsetting for everyone. <laughs> it's just an arms race between whether the bird will break its neck, it will find an open window, or you will die of avian flu. So when we talk about feral children, um, it tends to conjure this image of, like, a Mowgli-style child raised by- what was Mowgli raised by? A bear? Wolves. Wolves. That's right, he was raised by wolves. He and the bear were just buddies. That's right. They were just friends and possibly a bad influence. And the bear had, like, a weird relationship with a panther? Yeah, I knew there was a panther in there somewhere. I found it oddly homoerotic. It's been a while. It's been a while since I saw the Jungle Book. Their names are Baloo and Bagheera, and I think they're married. (laughs) It was probably, uh, ten years since I last saw the animated version of the Jungle Book, but it's probably been two years since I learned about the weird racial overtones of the animated Jungle Book. Oh yeah, Kipling had some... He had some interesting ideas. He had some thoughts. Let's put it at that. (laughs) Tote that white man's burden. But, um, yeah, when we talk about feral children, we typically get this image of children raised by animals, but very, very few children, feral children throughout history, were actually raised by animals or supported by animals. Um, A lot of feral children are simply cases of extreme neglect. So some some feral kids have just sort of emerged naked from the woods and we kind of have no idea how they survived, if they've been on their own for six months, for, or for a year, for most of their lives. But it is possible to have a feral child that didn't grow up outside. Um, lots of feral children just grew up in excessively abusive... When I say lots, I mean there's been maybe 50 recorded feral children throughout history. Like, these are extreme cases. These are very extreme cases. Be- All of them. Because typically kids in these situations die to be frank. Um, But every now and then a child survives extreme neglect. And of those extreme cases of feral children, Jeannie is probably the most extreme case. She's also possibly the only feral child in history where we know the child's origins for a fact. Like I said, most of their kids just sort of show up one day or they're discovered frolicking among the bears or whatever the fuck raised them and we don't know where they came from or how old they are. Jeannie, Mm -hmm. we actually know, which makes her kind of a unique case and she's sort of a touchstone for feral children and what we know about them. So Jeannie's early life is pretty much as fucked up as an early life can get. Uh, It reads like the origin story of a fucking Batman villain, and if there was any justice in this world, Jeannie would have grown up to be a Batman villain. But, um... Yeah, just full-on robbing banks and just leaving weird-ass clues. That would have been a more just and honestly a better outcome than what actually happened to her. Brace yourselves. This story, like I said, involves a description of extremely horrific child abuse, so, you know, go to your happy place. If you're driving, pull over for ice cream. Demand that the bus driver stop the bus. You know... Do what you need to do. Just as a note, Jeannie is an alias. Uh, This is not the child's real name. Jeannie was chosen by researchers and doctors who worked with the girl. Uh, Initially, in court records, her name was obscured. It has since been released to the public. Uh, Her name's Susan Wiley. It came out in court records when she was an adult. But uh, Jeannie was chosen as an alias for somewhat romantic purposes. They saw Jeannie as her emerging from a long period of isolation, like a genie emerging from a bottle. That's why it was chosen. A lot of Aguilera fans. Yeah. I mean, this this all happened well before Christina Aguilera's, I think, 1996 was when Genie in a Bottle came out, but... Uh, probably. Probably. But, um, no, Genie, Genie's an alias. The child was never called this. Uh, it's, it's only in documents that it appears this way. People who knew her called her by her real name. Susan. Susan. Yeah. It's, it was kept out of court records for a long time. It's known now. I don't know... People continue to use the name Jeannie when they talk about her, though, and Googling Jeannie mm-hmm. or Jeannie Wiley will get you a lot more results than Googling Susan Wiley. 
Genie also happens to be a major cautionary tale about ethics and psychological research, which is actually how I know about this case. It, it didn't come up for me in a class on child development or linguistics. This came up for me in a class about research ethics. No, like, it's, 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 it, you weren't just, like, had a, you didn't just have, like, a major class on feral children that doesn't come up enough to be relevant to the average clinical psychologist. No, I do have classes on child abuse, but uh, Janie's actually too extreme of a case to be useful for, uh, for classes on how to treat abused children. It's hard to pull out useful principles. Uh, she came up in a class about research ethics, and she's basically a big cautionary tale about what not to do if you happen to uh, uncover an extreme case in your career. Dramatic irony. So it's important to to keep a note. We're we're not doing this to make. F we're not going to be making fun of Jeannie in this episode. We're not going to be mocking any of the other feral children in this episode, because she speak for yourself. Okay, fine. You can mock an abused child. I will not stand in your way while you go right off that cliff edge. But yeah. um, what are you doing? Completely failing how to learn how to talk because you're so severely abused. Get it together. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica just likes to spend her weekends at the SPCA mocking the dogs for being homeless. You know. <laughs> this is this is a, a nice her skills generalize, I guess. But uh, I like I like to go to East Hastings and just heckle. <laughs> fuck. Doing some heroin in public? What a piece of shit. <laughs> like what do you got there? Oh yeah, the re remains of your worldly possessions. <laughs> Yikes. Um, yeah, I'm not going to be making fun of Jeannie because she asked for none of this and she didn't deserve any of this. But I will be making fun of the adults who mishandled her case because they f should have fucking known better. Jeannie's parents both had issues of their own. Neither one of them was particularly educated. Jeannie's mother was a farm girl from Oklahoma, and as a child, she sustained a severe head injury in an accident at the age of nine after her mother forced her to put laundry through an old-fashioned ringer and she was hit in the head with a crank. Ooh. Yeah, I've I've never actually used a laundry wringer, so I don't know how forceful that would be, but I apparently quite forceful. Severe laundry head injury is not something that is common nowadays. It doesn't bode well. That's, uh, yeah, no. That, that is some foreshadowing. Yeah, I mean, if you have a washing machine-related accident in childhood, I feel like you die? I feel like you die. I feel like this is, you know, the only way to have a laundry-related accident is if your brother accidentally puts you through a spin cycle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, otherwise it's like, or someone drops a laundry machine on top of you. Yeah, either way, I don't think you have to worry about the long-term effects. You're not gonna have to live with the consequences. Not so much. But it will stain your linens. <laughs> I'm just, you may have that to is violating the colors versus whites separation. Ooh. Yeah. That will make your underwear pink. That's the biggest concern when you squish a human child beneath a washing machine. <laughs> will my underwear be okay? <laughs> I'm just saying, blood has certain bleaching qualities. I just want to know who's moving a laundry machine fully loaded with underwear. <laughs> you don't judge me. You don't know my life. Don't buy a washing machine on Craigslist. It comes fully loaded with stranger panties. <laughs> That's why it was cost so much. I feel like that should lower the price. You haven't been on Craigslist, have you? <laughs> Dear God. Oh no, you made a sex joke at my expense. <laughs> Look at us switching Who's things up. Who's the naive innocent now, Janelle? Fuck. <laughs> I'm a man of the world. Oh, you. things are happening to you in Vancouver, and I don't feel good about it. 
<laughs> so back to child abuse. Uh, yeah, back to that. Getting hit in the head with a laundry crank gave Irene, Jeannie's mother, lifelong neurological problems, and it caused her to develop a degenerative eye problem, something to do with her retina. She came to California as a teenager to flee the Dust Bowl, because this is all... Jeannie was born in the 60s, so this is all happening way back. And she started working the soda fountain at a drugstore. Actually, I didn't even need to say when this happened. I could have just said that sentence. <laughs> That that pretty well contextualizes Soda Fountain at a drugstore pretty much narrows that down. That is a narrow period of time. Yeah, we don't have those so much anymore. Yeah, here in the U.S., uh, these need to come to Canada, but every movie theater or a lot of fast food places have these, like, soda machines where you can just kind of mix and match syrups and make whatever the fuck you want. Ooh. I'm not good at that. Don't drink a full cup of lime syrup. That's, that's the main lesson there. <laughs> that was a poor choice. Unfortunate. <laughs> it was mixed with uh, soda water, but it didn't make any kind of recognizable soda. It was just, here's a big cup of overpowering lime. <laughs> Have at it. Just gargle lime. Mm. But yeah, she met and ended up marrying Jeannie's father while working at this drugstore. And Jeannie's father was a man 20 years her senior. Good start. Good start. As an adult, her eyesight continued to deteriorate as a result of the neurological problems and also from the frequent beatings from her husband. Good stuff. Yeah, good stuff. He didn't help. That's what the always. That's what the doctor ordered. Right. Frequent beatings. Yeah, you know, you just go f full circle. That's what they thought. You know, hair of the dog. Like a clap on, clap off light. That's how brain damage works. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just even it out. Um, it's like a bad haircut. <laughs> is it? I have no idea. That was a metaphor I do not understand. Well, because you just want to even out, but get even on both sides. Yeah, that's that's what every child thinks the first time they trim their own bangs. Creates months of unfortunate photos. So by the time Jeannie came around, Jeannie's mother had cataracts and a detached retina and was almost completely blind, which exacerbated the situation. Jeannie's father, on the other hand, was all kinds of fucked up. Jeannie's father was given the name Pearl at birth. Which is not a man's name and never was. <laughs> no. I mean, I don't I don't wanna I'm willing to bet in no language is the name Pearl a masculine name. It's not. And it never was. And not in fucking Midwestern United States. It's not. No. So she named him Pearl. Which really did some strange things to his head, and she apparently she tre she frequently treated him as a girl, and he developed kind of a complex about this. As a, as an adult, he changed his name to Clark, which is more traditionally masculine. Anything would be. Yeah. Whitney is more traditionally masculine. Leslie. Fucking Courtney. All kinds of fun names. <coughs> <coughs> One second. <coughs> oh my gosh. Out demon. You know what's really terrible about this? Huh. This is actually psychosomatic. Is this? Is this? I'm just, not sick. Is this just a response to 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 my voice? You've just oh, got to cough the evil out. Reaction. Oh shit! Yeah, they just have to excise my demons and or like the amount of like sputum currently lurking in my chest. Sputum is a word that oh. I've sputum. It's it's never good. It's one of those great medical terms that sounds exactly like what it is. In this case, chestnut. Mmm, that's the technical definition. Mm, sputum. Delicious. Tastes good on toast. Mm. Oh, it's, it's about the same consistency as fucking mayonnaise, so yeah. Man, that's that's the last time I've ever eaten mayonnaise. I have eaten my last mayonnaise. <laughs> good to know. Uh, Jeannie's father's mother. His mother was a madam of a brothel, and his father was killed by lightning when he was a young child. So that's... <laughs> 
Great start. Great start. It's like a stereotypical, horrifying child. What is stereotypical about that? Who's running around being like, ha, I bet you're the kind of guy whose dad was killed by lightning. That's not an assumption anybody ever makes. My grandfather survived nearly getting hit by lightning. Actually, I think it blew him across a barnyard. That makes a lot of sense. If somebody has lightning strikes in their background, it's you. But like that seems like this sort of like fucked up childhood, you know, pre-dust bowl that you would just make up for like a character in a Dickensian novel. Yeah, daddy killed by lightning is not not something that children typically have to contend with. Like it's never been covered by Sesame Street. <laughs> No, it doesn't have an Arthur episode. There's there's no Berenstain Bears and the Daddy Killed by Lightning. None of this. None of this no. at all. Davey, Dave Pilkey never touched on it. No, no one's really... There's no books to help you Get through that Get on it, Robert one. Munch. <laughs> Fuck. So his mother's brothel running duties kept her too busy to be a mom. So he mostly grew up in a series of orphanages in the Pacific Northwest. When Clark became an adult, however, he reconnected with his mother, who felt so guilty about the way that he'd been raised that she doted on him, and they developed a weird, dependent, interconnected relationship that was much more intense than a relationship between a mother and an adult son, which is not good. That's... This is so many times sex is unhealthy. Men who have weird relationships with their mothers are a mainstay on true crime podcasts. Clark's mother paid his bills and supported him financially well into middle age, and she frequently came over to help out around the house. He became, like I said, ridiculously, fiercely devoted to her and refused to hear any criticism of her, even though they constantly fought. Like, when I say they had an intense relationship, like, I'm talking like- Intense. More of a Barbara Bakeland, Tony Bakeland relationship, which you can hear about on our two-part series on the Bakelands. We have a type. We have a type. His mother felt that he was too rigid and uptight, and that was frequently a source of friction between them. And she was right, to be clear. He was incredibly rigid, as we'll find out. But he made it extremely clear that his wife and family would always come second to his mother, and that his primary attachment would always be to her. No child or wife was ever going to usurp her, and he, he told them that. Which... <laughs> it's one thing when it's implicit, it's another thing when it's explicit. Yeah, if... If I'm dating a man and he sits me down one day and tells me that I will always come second to mommy, that's when I start buying a fancier security system. <laughs> that's the end of that. Yeah. I don't know if that's your first red flag, but it's a pretty big red flag. Like, that's the kind of red flag they drape across, like, red square. Like, that is a big red flag. That is the kind of red flag that comes up during military parades during the Soviet Union. Yeah. So we, we're starting out this story. Jeannie doesn't even exist yet, and we have a poorly adjusted adult man with mental health problems who has a weird, intense relationship with his ex-prostitute mother. It's not a good start. So things were already working against Jeannie before she was even born. Jeannie was born sometime in the year 1957 in Arcadia, California. She was the fourth child born to her particular set of parents, but she was only the second child to survive. Her father never ever wanted to have children and had an extreme sensitivity to noise. So that situation ended about as badly as it possibly can. Her oldest sibling, a sister, died at the age of 10 weeks after contracting pneumonia from being left in a bureau drawer in the garage because her father found her cries disturbing. Oh. Yeah, that's a, that's a whole sentence. There's lots in there. Just, just think it over. Oh, that's a lot. That's a lot. That is a complex dish. Of horrifying child lots abuse. Of, lots of notes in there, yep. Yeah, like a little bit of basil, a little bit of parsley, and just like a huge heap of what the fuck. Yeah, he apparently didn't expect the child's cries to be as 
irritating to him as they were. And yeah, he just he put her in a drawer in the garage till she basically caught pneumonia and died. Um, wow, maybe you should sleep in the garage. Yeah, and somehow they avoided consequences for this. I guess the the death by pneumonia was just sort of taken as like kids died a lot in those days. Yeah, it's the fifties. Shit happens. Is kind of how they got away with this. Like this family slipped under the radar of child protective services for a very long time. And to be perfectly honest, Jeannie herself is the reason that child protective efforts were stepped up. Jeannie's case was huge in the news when she was discovered, and the reason that child protective services are much more vigilant now than they were back then is partially due to her. So the second Wiley child was born with RH compatibility. This is a condition that arises when the mother's RH blood type Mm. is different than the fetus's, and her body attacks the fetus. To this day, this is actually still a problem. Today we know Mm. to monitor for it, but back then, uh, not so much. So the child was born with RH incompatibility and died at the age of two days, which actually wasn't anybody's fault. That's just kind of, that can happen. Shit happens. Shit happens sometimes. The majority of the population don't experience this because I think almost 80% of the population is RH positive. So usually a mother and a child will have the same RH blood type, but every now and then they don't, and that causes serious problems. Huh. Usually in the second pregnancy onward. I have a question. Do you? Yeah. My siblings and I have different RH factors, right? Yep. Would this only affect a fetus? Because, like, I am negative. I think the other two are positive. We're all O's. And so, I don't know my mother's blood type, but, like, would this mean that she had a positive type? Your mother has a positive blood type if she didn't have arch incompatibility. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So it would only be, like, if she was negative and had a positive baby. Correct. In RH incompatibility only is only possible when, when the woman is RH negative. That's why it's it doesn't happen all the time, because most mm-hmm. women are RH positive. Yeah. O negative is, like, 4% of the population. Yep. Um, this happens to women who are AB and uh, AB negative as well. So, uh, mm-hmm. your, your ABO group can be different from your parents without consequence. It's RH type. Blood is complicated, but basically it's it's only RH tape that can cause Blood this. Blood is so complicated. It's just, like, so complicated. Yeah, it's the second pregnancy onwards, uh, usually, but I don't mm. I don't know for sure. But um, it's, it, it's what happens when a woman with RH negative blood type is exposed to the RH positive blood cells in her fetus's mm. RH blood. This causes her body to develop RH antibodies, so when she has subsequent pregnancies, she her body will attack the baby's blood. And you need mm. blood. Babies need blood. Today, we know... Well, I mean, we, we even back in the 1950s, we knew how to solve this, but you had to know that it was a problem first. And you mm-hmm. don't typically know to, that it's... A, you had to screen for it. Yeah, and you don't know that it's a problem back in the day until you actually lose a baby, usually. Or mm-hmm. until a baby suffers consequences. The The second child dies of RH incompatibility. It's nobody's fault. I don't think the kid even made it out of the hospital. Her surviving brother, John, was next. He, too, had RH incompatibility, but he survived infancy. He also endured horrific abuse, but he didn't endure abuse to the same extent that Jeannie did, largely because uh, as a child, he was removed from the home and partially raised by Clark's mother. Um, Mm. Clark's mother saw that Clark wasn't really handling the child very well, and I think she was somewhat concerned and suspicious about the first child's death. And so she took him out of the out of the home for for some time. So he had the opportunity to learn language and to be exposed to a supportive environment. So um, weird, but supportive. Yeah, he he avoided his sister's fate. Jeannie, like I said, was the fourth child born sometime in 1957. I don't know if her back exact birth date is known. Jeannie was also born with RH incompatibility. Like I said, this is once it happens to to a child, it's going to keep happening. But Jeannie's life was saved by a blood transfusion after birth. 
And other than the RH incompatibility, she was a healthy child who was on the 50th percentile for weight at the time of her birth. Dead on average. Perfectly normal. Early medical records indicate that Jeannie was healthy during her early months, and she was found to be at a healthy, expected weight at her three-month checkup appointment. At that three-month appointment, however, it was discovered that she had congenital hip dysplasia. Again, nobody's fault. This just kind of happens sometimes. Hips are weird. Sometimes. Sometimes they displage. They do displage. It's unfortunate when they displage, but it's fixable. So to correct the deformity in her hips, Jeannie had to wear a very restrictive splint until she was 11 months old. Children sometimes still have to do this. This is still the treatment for this particular condition. Being in the splint caused her to reach her physical milestones late. This is a splint that holds the child's legs out from the hips at basically a 90 degree angle. It looks incredibly uncomfortable, but apparently you need it if you're going to walk proper as an adult. So because she was in the splint and had limited mobility, she didn't reach her physical milestones on time. Typically 11 months is when you begin walking, so if you've been in a splint the whole time, it's it's not going to happen for you just yet. But as a result of reaching her physical milestones late, her father began to suspect that she was intellectually disabled. This, This was an idea that started churning in his fucked up little mind. I don't understand the connection, but okay. Her fa- nothing her father thinks or does makes any sense from now on. This is this is not a well man. So by this point in her development, she'd fallen to the eleventh percentile in weight, which her doctors later attributed to malnutrition. They think her parents were probably underfeeding her at this point. At the age of fourteen months, she developed pneumonitis, just a childhood infection. Again, probably nobody's fault. This just kind of happens. You know, kids, they get their snot everywhere. They like everything. Kids are disgusting. They get pneumonitis. It happens. They're repulsive. Just tiny machines full of boogers and poo. But because it was kind of an emergency, she was seen by a pediatrician who was not her usual doctor. And this doctor told her parents that he suspected Jeannie had cernicterus, which is a rare form of preventable brain damage that can sometimes result as a complication of RH incompatibility or severe jaundice at birth. This is not a guarantee. Most people who are ha- born with RH incompatibility do not develop this condition. This is a severe complication. Mm. But the doctor tentatively diagnosed her with it and told her parents that she was, and I apologize for the terrible old-timey language, a retarded little girl. Back then, that was a perfectly normal medical term. That was a medical term. It's It comes from the French word for slow. Um, even today, some doctors will still say retarded development to refer to children who are physically underdeveloped. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not super used for mentally underdeveloped, but it is still used in scientific circles. In any case, this ramped her father's suspicions up to an 11. This was was a suspicion. The doctor said he thought she might have this. But in his mind, this proved that Jeannie was profoundly and permanently intellectually disabled beyond all help. And he believed that she would always need to be fiercely protected from the entire world. He believed that if she was intellectually disabled, that people were going to take advantage of her if he didn't intervene and protect her. Well, that sounds like a good protective father No, but it's not. But considering all the things you've said before now, I'm concerned. You don't become world famous as the poster child for child abuse because your dad was good at this. So there's, this was already a rocky start, but this is actually not what sparked what Jeannie became. Um, there's no telling, really, how Jeannie's development might have gone if she'd continued on this trajectory. But early on in Jeannie's childhood, a disaster befell the family that changed the course of her life forever. So in December of 1958, Clark's beloved mother was crossing the street with Jeannie's brother to go buy ice cream cones when she was struck and killed by a drunk teenage driver. Okay, now that is stereotypically horrifying. That is stere- like, I'm, there's no, there's no happy points to this story. This was a weird choice for a comedy podcast. 
<laughs> Bad Janelle. It's an interesting story, but no part of it's cheerful. I mean, there was ice cream. I don't... It's just that nobody got to have any. They got a funeral instead. I hope they serve the ice cream at the funeral. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Morbid, but all right. I'll, I'll accept it. Um, unfortunately, the car dragged her some distance down the street. And so when Clark saw her body in the hospital, she was basically unidentifiable, which sent him even further over the edge. The teenage driver was a hit-and-run driver, and he was caught the next day, but he was let off with only a probationary sentence. He straight up killed a woman? Yeah, he did. He, 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 like, he And dragged her down the street, and then, I don't know, it was the 1950s, I guess and they- took off? They were more casual back they then. They were much more casual about teenage drunk driving. I mean, you killed a woman, but she was an ex-prostitute. Slap him on the ass and tell him to get up, get going. Basically what they did, he got probation. The lack of justice for her death, and I mean the combination with her death, sent Clark off the deep end. This is where we go fully off the fucking deep end. This is... Like a full-on, you know, Michael Phelps swan dive off the deep end. Oh yeah, everything up until now was sort of acceptable compared to, to where we go from here. It was just a normal shitty childhood. Now we're going into straight-on terror territory. Turbo shitty childhood. Nitro shitty. Clark became convinced that the world did not care about him or his mother, and so it was up to him to protect his family from what he saw as the evils of the world. He spiraled into this dark, paranoid depression, and he took his whole family down with him. This was- they all went down with that ship. So he quit his job and moved the entire family into his mother's old house, where they essentially became prisoners. The master bedroom was kept untouched as a shrine to his dead mother, and I mean, the phrase <laughs> shrine to his dead mother does not bode well. Uh, the son was allowed to leave the house to attend school and occasionally to play with a neighbor boy. Otherwise, basically nobody left the house. When the boy did return to the house after school or after playing, his father would force him to prove his identity in elaborate ways before he would be allowed back inside. <laughs> I don't know, just in case some fucking changeling came, like, I don't know... Who thinks that their eight-year-old is masterminding a plot to get an imposter into the house? But he would have to prove his identity or he wouldn't be allowed back in the house. Oh, can you imagine if you're just like, your, your friends want you to come out and play when you're just not, you just, you're like, you're just too emotionally tired to like have to prove who you are to your paranoid father at the end of it? They're right? like, oh, come on, come out and play, John. And you're just like, oh, this shit again. Guess I'm just gonna have to sleep outside tonight. There's there's people who will let Tinder dates into their home to have sex with them with less effort than this guy put into letting his child back inside. Jeannie's <laughs> mother was mostly blind by this point, and so she was completely dependent on Clark. Jeannie's mother and the son slept on pallets in the living room while Clark kept watch over them from an easy chair in the corner with a gun on his lap. Sweet Sweet dreams! dreams. Daddy's in the corner with his gun. Oh, yeah, you're gonna be safe. Okay. Being blind is almost a mercy at this point. You don't have to wake up and see that shit. Yeah, just somebody standing over you. I assume slowly stroking a gun like it's a Persian cat. <laughs> Clark never allowed outsiders in or near the house, and he kept the gun nearby at all times in case somebody tried to come in. Like, he was convinced that somebody was gonna come in to kill the family. See... I find this weird because, not because of the paranoid delusions or the gun stroking or, like, the constant hypervigilance, but, like, his mother wasn't killed by an intruder. 
No. She was killed by a drunk kid in a car. He just became convinced that the world was evil and it was out to get them. It didn't... Like, random circumstance can't possibly kill so noble and good a woman. No. Basically. It, it has to be a concerted... The universe is against my family specifically. This was a this was a long leap across very broken neurons to make this connection. Also, the only way to protect my family is to abuse the shit out of them. Apparently, yeah, I'm just I'm just gonna keep my son safe by like constantly interrogating him every time he wants to come inside to go potty, and he has to sleep on a wooden pallet while I stand over him with a firearm. Nothing says safety and security like that. Clark, he he never allowed outsiders into the house. And the family lived in constant terror of his anger and paranoia. He told his wife that he would kill her if she contacted her family or told anybody what was going on. But as horrific and terrible as all that is, none of that compares to what Jeannie went through. This is your last chance to get off this ride before we describe Jeannie's childhood, so... Beware all ye who enter here. You know, go hug a puppy, put your head between your knees, we can get through this together. We know the details of Jeannie's abuse because her father carefully documented it in a notebook. Good, keep some evidence. Yeah, he had a he had an abuse journal, along with strategies that he wrote in there for keeping the abuse concealed. Dear diary, today I threatened my wife with danger if she ever told her family what I'm doing. Also, that cute boy across the street made eyes at me. I will kill his whole family if he comes to my front door. <laughs> yeah, her father had an abuse diary, which was weird. And initially, it was just him abusing Jeannie, but as time went on, he began forcing Jeannie's brother John to abuse her as well. And he coached his son in how to abuse her, and also in how to conceal his sister's existence. Nobody knew that Jeannie existed outside of the house until she was discovered and made national news. This obviously took a massive psychological toll on the brother, because being forced to abuse your sister at gunpoint is not a normal childhood experience. It's not? No, I know, it's a strange, uh, strange world, but... These are just cultural differences, I guess. Just, you know, some, some people mm. have rice for breakfast, some people force their children to abuse each other at gunpoint. And other people eat, like, ketchup on eggs. I know. We're all different. You know, constant psychological terror, opening one present on Christmas Eve. They're just, they're just differences. Yeah, wearing shoes in the house. They're, that's just an American thing, which I will never mm. understand. There's sand everywhere. But um, this, yeah, this took a massive psychological toll on John. And so John began running away from home as a teenager and eventually ran away for good before his sister was ever discovered. Jeannie was placed in the back bedroom of the house, one which faced away from the street and was exposed to virtually no noise. Clark believed that she would be in danger if anybody knew about her. It's just the, the fact that she existed would be too much of a temptation for this evil world. State secret. She was. The only way he thought he could protect her was if he kept her existence a complete secret. So like I said, none of the neighbors ever knew that she existed. Jeannie spent most of her days physically strapped to a children's potty seat in a harness that her father personally sewed for her. The harness restrained her from moving anything but her hands and feet. At night, she would be strapped into a sort of sleeping bag that her father had fashioned into kind of a homemade straitjacket with arm restraints. She would then be placed into what is usually described as a crib in documentaries and books about Jeannie, but it was actually more of a cage. It was kind of a container with mesh on the sides and like a chicken wire lid that was placed on top of it and wired shut at night. The, the mother later denied this, but 
uh, sometimes the family would forget to come and put her into the sleeping bag and she would just spend days on end strapped into the toilet. Why did she need to be strapped down? He he just, this was her father's fucked up view of how to protect her. She had very- The only way she could be saved is if she's in the cage. If she's physically prevented from moving. Like, she she was- It's incredible that any child was exposed to such little stimulation. And just the effects this has on a human brain we're gonna get into. But her room had very little visual stimulation. Like, not only was she not really getting any motor stimulation, she was not frequently allowed to move very much, but her room had no carpet and only a bare light bulb. Uh, The windows were also covered up to about three inches from the top, one of which was left open. So the room was dark most of the time. Through the top of the windows, the only thing that would be visible was the sky, a sliver of sky, and the side of the neighbor's house. Uh, The crib and potty chair were pretty much the only furnishings in the room. And in place of toys, Jeannie was occasionally allowed to play with two plastic raincoats that hung on the wall, or she would be given garbage from the house to play with. Things like empty cottage cheese containers, empty thread spools, etc. Wow. So, like, the the kind of enrichment below what an abused bear at a Russian crack house gets. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Large predators living in crack houses and drug dealers' homes get way more stimulation than this. Circus bears get a better upbringing than this. This is well below what the average fight dog gets. Yeah, it genuinely would have been better if she had grown up in the woods. They could have literally made this little girl fight dogs and it would have been healthier. At least she would have been getting some movement and interaction. Like I mentioned earlier, her father had an extreme intolerance for noise, and he ordered the other members of the family not to speak to Jeannie. He also very rarely allowed conversations in the house, and the few conversations that were had had to be quiet and kept to a minimum. His wife and son were frequently beaten for speaking, and as a result, they just didn't speak very often. Um, No television or radio was allowed in the house, and any time Jeannie made any kind of noise or vocalization, her father savagely beat her for it with a wooden plank. A plank? A plank. A plank. Yes, a, a piece of wood. I don't know why that was the weapon of choice, but that's what he chose. She can't even just move! Mm-mm. You're gonna beat her with a plank? Yes. This is this is not a parenting podcast. This is not even a stick, a plank. This is not Dr. Spock. No, next time you hear a mommy blogger saying that someone else is abusing their child because they allowed them to eat chicken nuggets, try to keep this case in mind. Get, let, let, let yourself have some perspective by understanding the full range of human horror a parent can inflict upon a child. Yeah, if you're worried that you're fucking your kid up because you're letting them eat gluten and watch television, you're you're fine. This is You're okay. Yeah. This is this is there, you could be doing so much worse. Yeah, her father also did this thing where he would bare his teeth at her or bark or growl at her like a dog as a warning if he suspected that she was doing something she shouldn't be, which was basically anything. He would often make these noises outside of her door and then come inside to beat her if she didn't stop whatever she was doing, usually making noise. Sometimes she would cry when she was hungry, and that was often what would trigger this. He grew out his fingernails so that he could scratch her more effectively. Psychologists later believe that her father may have viewed himself as a guard dog and that this was sort of his fucked up way of acting it out. Jeannie had a lifelong fear of dogs, probably, they think, as a result of this, because seriously, who wouldn't? What the fuck? Yeah, no no part of this is gonna make any sense. I. What the fuck? Yeah. yeah. That's... What the actual fuck? That's, that's a thing that happened. 
I had an uncle who used to bark at me. It was very different, though. I hope it was different, or I'm retroactively yeah. calling Child Protective Services. You may be 28 years old, but I will call. <laughs> he also only had one leg, so like he used to play air guitar with it. That didn't. That sentence didn't clarify anything for me. <laughs> it was very charming. I I guess I guess you have to when you're a barking one-legged air guitarist. There's some suspicion that Jeannie may have been sexually abused as a child because she didn't have enough going on. There's not really a ton of evidence for this, though. She had a tendency to masturbate in inappropriate contexts compulsively after she discovered, which was a habit that took years to break. And she was never fully broken of this. Um, well, I suppose when, like, that's the only stimulation you get. That's just it. Th- this is a common behavior in sexually abused children, but Jeannie was so profoundly socially damaged that... Nothing about her was ever really normal again, and there was no other evidence of sexual abuse that ever came to light, so maybe, but it also, yeah, could just be that there was, this is just how broken she was, um, even without sexual abuse. You, you, you keep, like, I keep expecting, like, this to be, like, the bottom, but we're, like, straight up skiing down the Marianas Trench right here. No, 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 we're still going. We're still going. Oh, we good. Have not There's yet reached... There are yet depths and weird fucking fish to find. We, we have not reached terminal velocity. We just whipped past a deep-sea angler fish, but you're telling me there's more. There's more. We're going, we're going right to the core here. Jeannie was never fed solid food either, and she was given as little food as possible to keep her alive. So she was only ever fed pablum, soft-boiled eggs, baby food, baby cereal, or liquids for her entire early life. I will keep my child safe by starving her. Yeah, also chewing, I guess, is part of the evils of the world. Too strenuous. I don't I don't know what the deal is with chewing, but it wasn't allowed. No chewing allowed. Well, maybe maybe that was a sound thing. Some people find chewing particularly irritating. I don't, I don't know what the deal was, but feedings were the only time that her mother was allowed into her room, and her mother was not actually allowed to feed her. Jeannie was also forced to eat quickly. If she slowed down or choked, her face would be rubbed into her food as punishment. Oh. Yeah. Like she's a dog that peed on the carpet. Yes, exactly. I also like how, like, no matter how much she needs to be restricted from, like, all human contact... He's still gonna make his wife feed her. Oh, no, the wife wasn't allowed to feed her. The wife just had to witness this. Just witness the feeding. Yeah, this is just a unique form of cruelty. I don't know why she was in the room. Watch! She can't even see. She's blind. It's just, just listen as your child (laughs) gags on eggs. I don't know what was, (laughs) what he was hoping to achieve by this. This was... Is this like one of those, what is is it, what do you call them, the ASMR or something? Oh, dear God, no. Dear God, this would have been horrendous. (laughs) Like, then you just hear the sounds, and it's supposed to be soothing or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you just hear a small child, like, gagging and having your face forced into eggs. This was, this was mother-daughter bonding. This was, this was the relationship. <laughs> this was the extent of the relationship that they had. I don't, I don't know why the hell. There's no logic to any of this. There's, none of this makes any sense. This is the ravings of a paranoid lunatic, but. <laughs> Witness. Yeah, it was it was claimed that Jeannie was fed three times a day, but based on the weight that she was when she was discovered, there's almost no way that that's true. Uh, her caretakers suspect that he often forgot to feed her, and since she was beaten for making noises when she was hungry, there was nothing to remind him to feed her. It would just be silent misery. So Jeannie's mother would actually sneak into Jeannie's room at 11pm each night after Clark had gone to bed and would give her whatever additional food she could sneak her. What this did to Jeannie, I mean, Jeannie had problems on problems on problems. We're probably going to struggle to even get through layers of a list of Jeannie's problems before we have to to end the the first half of this podcast. But Jeannie's 
mother would sneak in at 11 p.m. every night. And what this did was that it fucked up Jeannie's sleep schedule for years. For years and years after she was discovered, she had a habit where she would sleep in two shifts. She slept from 7 p.m. to 11 p.m. And then she would wake up for a little bit and then she would go back to sleep for another six and a half hours. And it was so incredibly difficult to break her of this because this was when she would eat. And when she would be able to eat without having her face rubbed in her food. So profoundly, I mean, all of this profoundly messed her up. But this was just another, this was small act of kindness still fucked her up. When you're in such like an abusive situation that the one moment of kindness you get every day nonetheless manages to fuck you up. Yeah. Like that's... That's something. And what makes all of this, I mean, this is all horrible enough, but what really makes this case so horrific is that this abuse went on for years. And when I mean years, I mean Jeannie was a teenager when she was discovered. Oh no. This went on from when Jeannie, Jeannie was about 24 months old when they moved into this, into the house and this all started. Or 22 months old. She was 22 months old. This went on from before she was two until after she was 12. That's a rather important stretch of time. So, Clark Wiley did not think that Jeannie would survive to age 12. And he told her mother that if she made it to her 12th birthday, he would allow her to finally seek help for Jeannie. But when her 12th birthday actually arrived, he changed his mind and it would be another year and a half before Jeannie escaped her circumstances. She was almost 14 by the time she was discovered. See, the most horrifying thing about this is the dramatic irony of knowing the longer you wait to intercede on a child that you think has a disability, mental or otherwise, the worse it's going to get. Yeah, I mean, we're going to get into this at the end of the episode when we kind of discuss the impact that Jeannie's case had, but Jeannie really helped nail down the idea of something called a critical period. Uh, in brain development. There's certain periods in your early childhood where you learn certain things. And if you go that entire period without learning that thing, your brain can never learn it. We've actually learned about this, not through humans, but through rather cruel experiments with cats, where we raise, not not we, I was not involved in this, but scientists raised kittens. Chanel. Yeah, scientists raised kittens for a certain number of weeks, from birth until a certain number of weeks, uh, in chambers that only had vertical lines. There was absolutely nothing horizontal uh, in, the, in the field of view. And they found that there's a certain critical period for vision where if you are not exposed to a horizontal line, you can never perceive them. We don't know if this applies to humans because Jesus... Holy. Yeah, I, I don't think you're. I don't think that's getting past the board of ethics. Holy yeah, fuck! Yeah, you've, you've got to get this shit approved, and there's not a there's not an approval board in the hopefully. We, the there's a lot world. we will let you do to a cat that we will not let you do to a baby. We will not let you raise a baby in a chamber full of vertical lines just to see what happens. Absolutely not. But it does work for cats. You can screw up a cat's ability to perceive anything if you raise it in isolation. Would they just like fall off of tables? I actually don't know, but they just they just kind of can't do anything. They they can't really see. They can only perceive vertical lines, which is just as someone with a normal brain development, I don't think any of us are actually capable of of visualizing what that would be. Yeah, like that's an in- incomprehensible idea. Yeah, information hits your eyes and your brain just cannot perceive it. It doesn't matter. Like a big pizza pie. Yes. Is that a more? <laughs> no, that's animal abuse, but you know. <laughs> way too funny. You find that way too funny. The good news is, is that, uh, deep breaths, everything gets slightly better from here. Still horrifying, but 
it's gonna go uphill and then slightly downhill again, but the worst is over. I still think we're hanging around in the Marianas Trench, It's though. Oh, yeah, it's not good. I mean, none of this is good, but... Light cannot reach us. Light, there's, there's no joy, there's... Nor could it reach Genie, for that matter. There is neither light nor God can reach us down here. Uh, nothing's good. But in October of 1970, Jeannie's parents got into a violent fight, and Jeannie's mother threatened to walk out on the family if she wasn't allowed to contact her parents. Afterwards, her father relented, and when Clark left the house that day, Jeannie's mother escaped, bringing Jeannie with her to her parents' house. Uh, Jeannie's brother was 18 at this point, and he'd already, like, long run away. I haven't been able to find any records of Jeannie's, or, uh, uh, Irene, that's Jeannie's mother, of Irene's parents' reaction to Jeannie, but the fact that they didn't do anything, nobody criticizes them in the literature. They just sort of mention haphazardly that, like, Jeannie was taken to their house, but the fact that they saw Jeannie in her condition and didn't contact anybody, they deserve much more shame than they get. So much shame. They seriously drop the ball. Please, somebody, anybody, do something. Yeah, so a couple weeks after escaping, Jeannie's mother realized that she needed some way to financially support herself, so she decided to apply for disability benefits for the blind. And so on November 4th, 1970, Jeannie's mother brought Jeannie with her to apply for benefits in Temple City, California. But, because she was blind, Jeannie's mother walked into the wrong office. She walked into the general social services office instead of the disability office, which was next door. It was complete happenstance that Jeannie was discovered. And the social worker who first spotted Jeannie when they walked into the office immediately sensed that something was wrong. At age 13 and a half, Jeannie stood four foot six and weighed 59 pounds. That's not good. I don't know the developmental milestones by heart, but that does not sound You shouldn't good. weigh 59 pounds in the 8th grade. Yeah, I'd agree with That's, that. You're, that you're destroying the weight curve, and not in a good way. Yeah, like, I mean, like, no one's impressed. You think you're so special, like, oh, I only weigh, like, as much as, like, a large poodle. Mm. The average family dogs weigh more than that. I, I'm sure there's cats that have weighed more than that. that I, I think that's about the weight that, like, a 7 or 8 year old should be. She walked with a strange rabbit-like hopping gait, with her hands curled up in front of her like paws. You can find videos of this on the internet, they're heartbreaking, but this is sort of apparently a trait that happens sometimes with blind children. It's kind of a a stance associated with people who can't trust their eyes, which makes sense because- Mm. So they're curled inward so they don't like hit anything with their limbs. And, And up in front of her too. Mm -hmm. Jeannie was unable to focus her eyes beyond 10 or 12 feet. She had never been in an environment with that was the that was the limits of the room that she was kept in. So she had she had Mm. never developed an ability to focus her eyes beyond that. She had no ability to focus long distance and she couldn't speak. So the social worker who saw her assumed that Jeannie was an autistic six year old. And when she was told that Jeannie was actually a teenager, she notified her supervisor immediately. Oh, yeah, because, like, holy fuck. Holy fuck. <laughs> this might be the 60s, but holy shit. The 70s. This is there 1970. There are still lines. Yeah, there's there's definite lines. You you can see f- photos and video of Jeannie, and it's unbelievable that this was a 13-year-old. The two of them, the social worker and her supervisor, asked Jeannie's mother to confirm Jeannie's age, and when she said, yes, this is a 13-and-a-half-year-old, they called the police because they knew that they were looking <laughs> at a very very abused child. Nothing nothing is fine in this situation. 
the average person on the street is not necessarily going to notice this. Like, oh, they're going to notice. They're going to notice, but they're going to assume gonna you notice. have a disabled six-year-old. They're just going to assume, like, they, they don't know, like, what kind of, they don't know every disability. They're not going to, like, question it. They're just going to be like, oh, that poor mother, blah, 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 because, like, they're kind of chauvinistic. It's back in the 60s. But, like, if you show this child to, like, an actual expert, they're going to immediately be concerned. Yeah, and it, it just so happened this was a social worker. So this, is, this is an expert in child abuse. They know that neglect causes small children and no child should be this small. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's not illegal to have a disabled six-year-old, but it is illegal to starve your child till they're 59 pounds at the age of 13. Very, very, so illegal. Incredibly illegal. Relentlessly Jeannie's illegal. parents were both immediately arrested for child abuse, and Jeannie was, again, pretty much immediately declared a ward of the state. She was taken to Children's Hospital Los Angeles, where she would eventually find herself at the heart of a power struggle, which we will get into. News of Jeannie's discovery became an enormous media sensation. The media and huge crowds of onlookers started staking out the house where she had been kept, and they bombarded her father. Classic. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do you know how the media are? This was a story. This was a huge story. And the fact that it had taken place in an unassuming house in the suburbs, people wanted to get a glimpse of the room where she'd been kept. But being bombarded with media attention and questions was not great for Clark's already unstable mental health. Yeah, he doesn't seem like a particularly okay dude at the best of times. Because, as we've previously discussed, the best of times with him barking at a small child for making noises and then scratching her with his claws. Yeah. Jeannie's father never commented to to the press, to anybody. He never made any public comment about what he had done to his daughter. He never really even acknowledged it, other than in his diaries. And he never would, because on the morning of November 20th, the day he before he was supposed to appear in court on child abuse charges, her father committed suicide by gunshot. He left behind two suicide, no- suicide notes, one addressed to his son, which read in part, Be a good boy, I love you. And the other note was directed to police slash the world at large, and it contained the phrase, the world will never understand. Yeah. We certainly We certainly won't. don't. And <laughs> 50 years later, we still don't understand. It, it there's, It's ununderstandable. I'm not sure there was some, like, I don't know if you can feel, like, judged and misunderstood when you were this mis- You don't get to feel like the victim when you did this to a child. Absolutely not. Yeah. Like, you are not the locus of, like, harm here. You're not. You're a monster, and you deserve this. So, Janie's mother had regular contact with Janie in the hospital, and she began showering her with love and attention. Janie's doctor had an attorney friend of his represent the mother in court on the child abuse charges, and the attorney successfully argued that she'd been powerless to help her daughter because, I mean, she was mentally ill, blind, and brain damaged, and getting frequently beaten by a gun-toting lunatic. I see the argument here. I can see the argument. It was argued that she was a, a, a victim of the father's abuse. She was not a child abuser in her own right. The charges against her were dropped, and she received psychological counseling at the same hospital as Jeannie. Uh, but she she did not get custody back, because there's limits. Jeannie was instead placed in the care of Dr. David Riggler, a psychology professor at University of South, uh, Southern California and the chief psychologist at the hospital, as well as Dr. Howard Hansen, the head of psychiatry and a renowned expert on early child abuse. A doctor and child abuse awareness activist named Dr. James Kent was also assigned to her the day after she arrived. It seems to me like none of these people are 
parents. They are actually parents, and uh, but like they're not parents to her. They're not. That's something. That's that's something is going to become a sticking point. The the way that she was managed after she arrived, and the constant struggle between child protection interests and research interests kind of defined the rest of her life. And it, it still does, by the way. Jeannie's alive today. Jeannie is still mm-hmm. alive. We'll, we'll talk about what what happened to her and where she is now. Um, but she is still alive, and the course of her entire life is... She's still facing the consequences and living with the consequences of what happened to her, not only before she was discovered, but after she was discovered as well. Jeannie was easily the most severely abused child any of these people had ever encountered in their careers, before or since. Very, very, very few cases ever reach the level of abuse that Janie experienced without actually killing the child, before or since. Yeah, like, children are delicate. It's hard to do this to them without killing and them. And nobody, I mean, people who abuse children don't typically, like, go to such elaborate lengths to isolate them from the world. I, I think probably to this day she's pretty much unmatched in the amount of cruelty that she faced. Maybe the kids who were found in that basement in s- Europe somewhere, but... Austria. Austria, you're right, it's Austria. That's a that's a messed up case as well. But um the the physical complications and the brain complications that she faced from this abuse are just absolutely incredible. As I mentioned already, she was severely undersized for her age and she had a distended abdomen. That's just something that's uh, it's a common side effect of malnutrition. Starvation, yeah. Yeah. She had two full sets of teeth in her mouth. I've never actually found any clarification on that. I don't know if she had all her baby teeth and then all her adult teeth, or if she had a condition that actually runs in my family, um, where you're born with extra teeth. Are your family, like, half shark? That's that's the exact same thing my mother said when my father told her about this. <laughs> my, my dad told my mom about this all the time, that he was my father was born with a partial um, extra set of teeth. He had a couple of extra permanent teeth instead of you know you should have one that comes down mm-hmm. when your first one falls out he had two he had an extra one up there like a shark and my mom always kind of thought he was kidding and she would yeah she would call him a shark tooth freak and stuff but then my brother was born with the exact same condition and when the dentist told <laughs> my mother like oh your kid has like extra permanent teeth she was like holy shit like were you being serious the entire time my dad's like yeah <laughs> She was like, I'm not certain I would have married you if I'd known. I didn't know I didn't know you were an actual shark mutant. I just thought this was a weird joke you were playing. Yeah, I I mean I exist because my mother did not believe my father about his rare dental condition, but I to this day I have I have no idea if Jeannie had all her baby teeth and then adult teeth that grew in over top of them, or if she actually had that condition where she had an extra set of teeth. But she had full two full sets of teeth in her mouth, which is not comfortable or healthy for anybody. Her buttocks were severely bruised and also very calloused from being strapped onto a potty chair all day. That's not good for you. Her hips were moderately deformed, her ribcage was undersized, and she had the skeletal development of an 11-year-old. Like I mentioned, despite the fact that she did have normal vision, she could not focus her eyes past the limits of the room where she'd been kept for 11 straight years. Um, She was unable to stand up straight or fully extend any of her limbs due to the extreme underdevelopment of her muscles, and she had virtually no endurance and tired very, very easily. She, her, her motor skills were an absolute mess. She had practically no gross motor skills. Like, she had very limited abilities to do anything. And she had the fine motor skills of about a two-year-old. Probably because she did have some ability to move her hands when she was strapped to this potty chair. But um, that strange bunny walk stayed, stayed with her. They, they weren't really able to break that. Yeah, see, that's kind of a weird thing to think about. But, like, yeah, if you, if you, if you do not exercise at all for 11 years... 
it feels like the sort of thing that is going to damage your ability to walk and move. It's probably hard for anyone who has normal brain development to even begin to wrap their mind around what it must be like to be Genie, especially in the early weeks and days after she was discovered and like her, her brain damage was at its absolute peak. Jeannie was unable to integrate visual and tactile sensory information. This is one of those things that's going to be incredibly difficult to even trust or to even to even visualize. But she literally wasn't able to trust her eyes. She had to pick objects up in order to learn about them. So when you see a cup, you kind of know what that cup should feel like before you pick it up. Yeah, like, you can tell what shape it has, you can tell what texture it has, you can tell if it's going to be smooth or rough. You know when you look at a fabric, like, basically what it's going to feel like, even if you've never felt that fabric before. Yeah, but she couldn't do that. Visual information was meaningless to her. When she looked at a cup, she had no idea what it would feel like in her hands, even though she had perfect vision. It didn't give her brain any information. Mm -hmm. She had to pick up the object in order to understand what it would be like. So, like, that's, like, an integration thing that we learn very, very early on because, like, when we're, like, tiny little babies, we get a lot of, like, objects that we're allowed to both touch and look at where, like, we can compare the information and eventually it becomes so natural we don't even think about it, but it's because of that early developmental stage where we do make those comparisons and, like, learn that information. Yeah, you you have no ability to sense the fact that your brain is constantly integrating information from different sources. But when you don't have the opportunity to develop that skill, your whole world is, it's just impossible. I mean, in general, she had problems with sensory information because she'd never been exposed to it. Vision was too much for her. Sound was too much for her. Touch was too much for her. It was, she couldn't do it. She couldn't integrate it. It was all, it was all way too much. Literally, literally everything she was experiencing was the most intense thing like, ever. Like, brightness, like, and loudness. Light, and like, all yeah. of that is way more intense than she's used to. Like, it, basically everything except pain, I would assume. Pretty much. Jeannie was also not able to chew and had very severe dysphagia, which is an inability to swallow. Mm. She struggled to even swallow liquids. Basically, she would just hold food in her mouth until her saliva broke it down to a liquid, like she was some sort of human Venus flytrap. <laughs> That was her eating strategy for a very long time. It was like, this will dissolve eventually. My enzymes will take care of that's, it. That's it. That was her eating strategy. It took a long time for anybody to fix that. She had some of the most severe dysphagia anybody had ever seen. Especially in a child that didn't have any physiological problems. There was nothing physically wrong with her. And probably, well, again, we'll talk about this extensively, but there was probably nothing mentally wrong with her in the beginning either. Jeannie was completely incontinent. Of course. Why wouldn't she be? Yeah. Not shitting yourself is, like, literally a learned skill. Yeah, one that comes quite a bit after most of your development. Uh, you know, you what do you potty train a child at? Three? Two? Something like that. Parents, some parent will correct me. I don't, I don't fucking know. Yeah, I don't have kids. I don't care. Somewhere around that age. Long after you learn to integrate visual information with tactile information. I, I know that much. I actually have trouble swallowing. Interesting. It's, I find tough food very difficult and I choke on it. I just sort of assumed up until now that you just swallowed all your food whole like a boa constrictor, so in some ways this is comforting information. <laughs> just unhinge my jaw. Just gulp it down. Just swallow whole eggs. Like you're a seagull trying to swallow a live fish. I just, I assume that's you. <laughs> like a pelican. I just like hold large prey animals in my mouth and then I just swallow them whole. <laughs> I can see it. 
Uh, no, my diet is like heavily liquid for that reason. Just cream, basically. You are being kept yeah. alive by heavy cream and unattended half and half. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's that's what I do. That's what I am. Uh, just show up at parties and just like filch all the dairy. Don't if you're if you're inviting Jessica over to your house, you got to keep an eye on the yogurts and creams. <laughs> you do, you do. Don't go missing. I, I cannot be restrained. They'll be kept at room temperature in Jessica's backpack until she's ready to consume. <laughs> Delightful. I just want something that high nutrition that I don't have to chew. <laughs> you're the kind of person Ed Sure was made for, except you're about 60 years younger than their target market. <laughs> I just think they're ignoring a part important demographic. You do a lot less chewing than any other human being with a full set of teeth, but all right. <laughs> An interesting side effect of Jeannie's child abuse, and, like, this'll come up a couple times, but Jeannie was completely impervious to temperature. She had no ability to distinguish hot from cold. She was not bothered by being outside in cold weather in very little clothing. She just, she didn't seem to notice or care. And this is a trait that persisted despite other improvements in her general functioning. And this is also a trait that is common to other feral children. It's actually also found in autistic children, so... Yeah, I, I was just about to say, like, that just reminds me of somebody. Yeah, you walk barefoot through the snow and you have all your original toes, but... <laughs> Which makes a lot of sense, but there is a social aspect to learning temperature, or at least there is a connection in your brain between social skills or social exposure and feeling temperature. This is not an inherent thing. Again, this is really difficult to understand if you have a normal brain development, if you're neurotypical and, and everything's working fine, but there's there's a connection between socialization and feeling cold. And we don't we do not understand it at all to this day. We have no idea why this is. Yeah, it's a weird thing to think about. It, like because we normally don't think of other people's social reactions to us of being capable of like programming our sensory reactions. But it makes a certain level of sense in that, like, other people are the first people to, like, give us a sense of, like, what is comfort, what is discomfort, what is to be endured, what is, like, acceptable. Yeah, and we're we're a very social animal, and our brain develops with the understanding and the assumption that we will have other people around us. People shape who you are. Your social interactions shape you. They make you in a lot of ways that you'll never understand. It was also very difficult to estimate Jeannie's intellectual functioning functioning because there aren't a lot of tools designed to test the intelligence of someone who has zero understanding of language. And that's still true mm. to this day. I mean, we have nonverbal tests, but Jeannie wasn't really even at a level of functioning where she could do them. One estimate put her at the level of a 13-month-old shortly after she was discovered, but what was that based on? Who knows? Yeah, like, what does that even mean? I don't even- there's there's no real way to estimate it accurately. Jeannie raised a lot of philosophical as well as scientific questions after her discovery. One of the big things that people were curious about, and people have been curious about for hundreds of years when they discover feral children, can people have thoughts without language? That's a question people have had mm. for a very long time. Most of us struggle to imagine what that might be like, because all of our thoughts involve language. You think in language. It's it's even hard for some people to imagine thinking in a different language, never mind thinking without it. But it, upon admission to hospital, Jeannie could only say two phrases, which she condensed into single words. She could say, stop it, and no more. And that's it. That was her entire linguistic output. Oh. 
Yeah. Oh. It's not good. Unfortunate. Not a good sign. Because um, that's an imitation of the only thing she heard. Yeah. Other than, like, dog barking. Something that complicated her life even further was the fact that uh, getting proper nutrition for the first time in her life triggered the onset of puberty. She was ah. prepubescent when she was discovered, but she began puberty as soon as they started feeding her. So they were now trying to deal with potty training a teenager who was also dealing with her first menstrual cycle. And they were trying to deal with a child who had zero socialization and extreme abuse while she was dealing with hormones. So this didn't, mm. this didn't improve anything at all in any way. That's just the physical complications, though. Unsurprisingly, Jeannie also had extensive social deficits. Scientists originally thought that she would, like, crave human contact after such a long time in isolation. And she did to an extent, but not yeah. not to the way they thought. She was curious about other people. And she would sort of follow people around just to kind of see what they were up to. It was like, this is fascinating, obviously. Oh, yeah. She spent most of her time just kind of wandering around the hospital in her weird little bunny stance, but... She was more interested in objects and rooms than in people. Um, mm. She found everything in her world fascinating. Everything was overwhelming. But, it's all novel. But she didn't really prize people over, like, shiny objects. This comes up a lot, but Jeannie was obsessed with plastic. Pro they think probably because uh, the only thing she was ever allowed to play with was plastic buckets and raincoats. And garbage? Yeah, she was way more into plastic than people. And she didn't really seem able to distinguish between different people in the beginning. She had little to no re reaction when her brother and mother came to visit her, and it's they're not really certain if she even knew who these people were in the beginning. She had no patience for other children at all. She had no interest in them. She seemed to regard them as if they were furniture. She was only interested in the intention of adults. Like I said, she would just sort of follow people around. That was kind of her thing. She wouldn't interact with them. She would just sort of wanted to see what they were up to. She would go on outings outside of the hospital with her doctor, James Kent, but it took about a month before she even seemed to care when he left. She didn't- he would leave and she would just sort of be indifferent. If he was there, fine. If he wasn't there, fine. She didn't really give a shit if people were around or not. She could take it or leave it. Which is not what they thought. They thought that she would immediately glom onto people and be completely distraught if they tried to leave her. But she just sort of was like, alright. Fine. Yeah, that actually makes more sense to me, but I suppose that's coming from, like, somebody who's, like- being aware of the last 50 years of psychological research. Yeah, we have a lot of advantage of hindsight when we talk about this. Like, this seems obvious to us, but, like, that's with the knowledge that, like, you don't have just an inborn desire to be with people. And, uh, even though Jeannie was mistaken for autistic in the beginning, Jeannie was almost certainly not autistic. There's, there's some reasons why, but her social interactions with other people were probably not affected by any kind of inborn condition like autism. It's pretty much pure abuse. In general, throughout her life, she tended to gravitate more towards adult men with beards. They think because that's what her father looked like, and that mm. was the only kind of male face she was familiar with. But she did form some bonds with women as well. Mostly, though, in the beginning, it was just straight hoarding. That's all she wanted to do. <laughs> I just want plastic. <laughs> She did. She would find plastic things and she would hoard them in her room and she would freak out if people touched her collection of plastic. <laughs> it's all her valuable belongings in this world. I kind of get it. Yeah, I, but I mean, she wasn't interested in other things. Clothing, meh. Like, metal things, meh. Plastic, though. Plastic. God, she loves plastic. Um, So much plastic. She was especially obsessed with plastic beach pails. Like my sister's dog. <laughs> 
Stop eating plastic, Kai. It's not good for you. My dog is obsessed with her stuffed animals, which she hides under the bed in tiny nooks and crannies that only a five-pound chihuahua can reach. And then she's <laughs> sad because she doesn't have any of her toys. <laughs> we're just, we're waiting for cause and effect to, to connect in her There's strange little dog brain. But Click in there, you know. Yeah, she'll like, get it one of I these I don't days. have any toys. Well, what did you do with your toys? I stuck them in a crevice. Okay, well, why don't you go back and get your toys from the crevice? Like, no, my toys. Every couple of weeks, I go spelunking for dog toys beneath my bed, so. <laughs> just, you know, full, put on a full mask and snorkel and just try to find your dog's missing missing squeaky toy. And they're so cute. All of her toys are from the puppy aisle because she's <laughs> way too small for conventional dog toys. So she just has these, like... Four inch long squeaky teddy bears. Adorable big eyed. It's great, but they are so fucking hard to find. Yeah, but Jeannie was particularly obsessed with plastic beach pails for reasons that no one ever figured out. She liked pails. One of her staff used to take her to the store, just, you know, just take her out and about. Mm. And pretty much every time she would come home with a beach pail, they would buy her a beach pail pretty much every other day. Just need one more beach pail. One of the funniest stories from her book, that uh, from the book uh, Genie, A Scientific Tragedy, was that um, as Genie was learning vocabulary, they kind of expected there to be difficulties figuring out how to apply words. This is something that you see in children with normal development. For mm. instance, when kids learn the word doggy, every four-legged animal is doggy until they figure yes. out where those limits lie. It's hard to tell where the boundaries of any category should be. Yeah, because, like, when you think about it, like, the range of things that are doggies is actually pretty broad. It's everything from Bianca to, like, a Great Dane. Yeah, it's tough. It's generally tough. Adults still mess up the fact that penguins are birds. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's hard. But um, one of the funniest things is that there were certain buckets that she would refer to as bucket and certain completely identical mass-produced beach pails that she would refer to as pail. And she insisted... On this distinction. She she did not use mm. the words bucket and pail interchangeably, but she was referring to mass-produced beach pails that were the same color, and they could never figure out where she was drawing that line, but she was quite certain. <laughs> Adamant. She's just she's just a bunch of human glitches. Like she's a glitchy video game in human form. And not everything she does makes any sense. It's like one of those early like word-based games that would only let you proceed ahead if you used the exactly the right word. Yeah, that's basically it. She's basically if you play the Sims with too many mods, all the babies come out looking like trees. That's basically what happened to her. <laughs> Somebody used too many mods on her childhood and there's there's just a lot of things wrong that cannot be fixed. There is some good news, though. Jeannie did make rapid progress in her first weeks at the hospital. Within days of being discovered, she was helping the nurses to dress her, and she was voluntarily using the toilet, although it took a very, very long time to completely toilet train her. She just, she would go sometimes. Within two weeks, she'd made enough progress that she was given more or less free reign to sort of wander around the hospital and observe what was going on. She quickly realized, and this is adorable, that she was no longer going to be beaten or punished for dropping things, and she was so delighted by this that she would just sort of stomp the shit out of things. <laughs> she was so enchanted with the idea that she could drop things that she would just sort of fling things across the room over and over and over again until they were destroyed. I, I think the, ki- <laughs> the word that the kids use now is yeet. She would just yeet the shit out of things. And scientists would let her do it because... 
at this point in her development, it was way more important for her to learn autonomy and to learn that she wouldn't be beaten than it was for her to learn how to not break her glasses. Her glasses is one of the things that she was especially fond of throwing and stomping on. The researchers were also delighted the first time she tried to smack the shit out of another child at the hospital. Um, she's, she spotted <laughs> Delighted, one- were they? Yeah, she, she spotted one of the girls, the other- little girls at the hospital, one of the other patients, wearing a dress from the hospital laundry that Jeannie had previously worn a few days prior, and she smacked this little girl for doing it. And they were delighted because it showed that she was starting to develop a sense of self and a sense of ownership, which were two things she'd never really had before. And a sense of smacking a bitch. Smacking a bitch. She had that pimp hands strong. (laughs) She can barely walk, but pimp hands strong. That's one of the first things that develops in a child, you know. The, the, Smack the, the, the key shit. win the key window for absolutely smacking a bitch is very broad. It's a it's a wide window. You you know you don't miss out on that one. No. If you're if you're still alive, you can still learn to smack a bitch. You may never develop language, but you can always develop a strong backhand. <laughs> you can. This is also exciting because Jeannie had always expressed anger and frustration by turning on herself. When she was upset or when um, she felt something was unfair, she would roll on the ground, rub mucus into her face and hair, and she would claw and scratch at herself. She always directed anger inwards, probably because she'd always been beaten, and so directing anger outwards towards another human being was actually a huge developmental stride for her. So they they were quite excited that she tried to slap somebody. It was just like, you're almost in the terrible twos. She is. She went through the whole stages of human development lopsidedly and not in the correct order, but she got there. Kind of. Um, She only got so far, we'll talk about that, but she also learned to become possessive towards people, which was exciting. So she started to acknowledge Dr. Kent's departures with facial expressions. She would sort of look sad when when he left, or she would at least acknowledge that he was leaving. Uh, And then one day she eventually reached out and grabbed his hand to prevent him from leaving. So she actually reached a point where she preferred human company to not having human company and where she was possessive and didn't want certain people to leave her. So mm. she was starting, this is the, the actual human attachment. It's like a, a proto nub of a relationship. Just the idea that mm. this is a good human and I don't want them to leave. So this was exciting. Yeah. Cause like the first step to having a relationship with someone is a preference for them being nearby. It is. It is. Like, utter, like, the opposite of love isn't, like, hate. It's it's indifference. It's indifference, yeah. Hatred towards somebody and love for somebody are more similar than you might think. They're uncomfortably similar. But not giving a shit whether someone lives or dies is the opposite of both of these emotions. Love and hate are not on opposite ends of a spectrum. They are in a you. So the fact that she was moving from indifference to difference was a lot. It was It was a stage that they weren't sure she would get to. She also, once she figured out that things had names, she became hungry to expand her vocabulary. She she was very excited by the idea that she could use the names of things to tell people what she wanted. This is a, a huge part of being human. It's being able to, to tell people what you want and having them give that thing to you. That's exciting. So she would pull people around by the hand and then point at objects she wanted to learn the name of, and she would get very frustrated when she would gesture to sort of the general environment and people would not know what she was getting at. She would just sort of point at things and people wouldn't know what the hell she wanted. But she, once she figured out the vocabulary was a thing that she could use to get stuff, she was all for it. She developed her vocabulary 
much, much faster than they had ever hoped she would. Strongly pro-dictionary once it involved collecting shit. This is a theme among kids who are linguistically deprived. It's vocabulary is the big thing that takes off very quickly. There isn't really a critical period for vocabulary. Accrue wealth. There is. There's a critical period for language, but there's no critical period for learning that things have names and for learning the names of those things. That's something you can grasp no matter how horrendous your childhood. As long as you have some ability to learn, you can do that. Yeah. Syntax and grammar, on the other hand. No, grammar's, grammar's a whole other can of worms, but vocabulary she could do, and she did it well. The other big milestone is interesting. At one point, the area was hit with a minor earthquake because California... And Jeannie ran into the kitchen to seek out one of the cooks that she had befriended, rapidly verbalizing. She wasn't making words, she was just kind of making noise. This was the first time Jeannie had turned to another human being for comfort when she was upset. Before, she had only ever really sought out human company to alleviate boredom, or just out of curiosity. But this is the first time she associated a human being's presence with comfort and safety. And it was the first time she'd ever tried to use language to express distress. Like, and that's, like, an important sign of reciprocation. It is. It is, actually. And it's it's just funny, the, the milestones they were excited about. They were like, all right, being upset about an earthquake and smacking a child. This kid's <laughs> going places. This is what we want. Full-on pimp hand and freaking out when you, get, when, when, when you get hit by a natural disaster. We're making so much progress. Yeah. Um, Accruing wealth in the form of pails. Exactly. And or buckets. Don't confuse the two. No, it's it's hilarious. They they tried really hard to figure out what, what distinction she was seeing between pail and bucket, and they, they couldn't do it. But this is around the time, after she'd been at the hospital for a couple of weeks, that Jeannie's entire staff were invited to watch a screening of a new movie about another famous feral child, uh, the French child, Victor of Averion. We will get into Victor's story in part two of this episode, along with Jeannie's eventual fate. Because there's a lot left to this. This is this is a big story, and I could not fit it into a single episode, so... 21 pages of notes. 21 pages of notes. I think my average episode is probably six. So, we've we've covered a lot of ground, and uh, we'll, we'll give you a short break from depressing child abuse and pick back up with more neglect. Coming right back at you with the child abuse. Absolutely. So, uh, so that has been... Same bad channel. Same bad time. This has been part one of our coverage of... Genie the Wild Child. I don't know that I hope you enjoy it. I hope you didn't enjoy it. I hope this was horrendous. I hope you had a natural disgust response to hearing about this because yeah, if you this en- is fucked if up. you enjoyed it, you need to see someone. Don't like this. Don't like this. I mean, acknowledge it. Do not like. Do not find subscribe. it interesting. Do do subscribe. Yeah, but, but find it compelling. Compelling is a good word. Not enjoyable. But com. But compelling in a way that hurts you deep in your soul. That's all we can really ever hope for when you listen to this podcast, is that you find it compelling, but also it hurts you inside, and you're both better and worse yeah. for having heard it. I hope you enjoy the sound of my roommate making pasta in the background. I hope you like that. So, you appreciate it. It's also very important. Very important. Vital, in fact. <laughs> in any case, I've been Jessica... And I am a less mucousy version of Janelle. And we are fat, French, French and, and fabulous. fabulous.